so tickled that you all are coming all the way from New York down to Hendersonville. Well, now, we, uh, to be honest, we're here to visit family. So, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, that's great. No, to... no. I, did, I wasn't expecting you to come down on my account. <laughs> what I'd love to do is do Left-handed, that's an outstanding quality in an individual. Well, it, right? It's kind of allowed today. These yes, days. yes. It's allowed it, it, to, to uh, flourish. Uh, my, flourish. My grandfather said the first day that he, uh, in, in school, was called up to the chalkboard and picked up the chalk with his left hand. The teacher reached in her drawer and pulled out a piece of cord, tied his left hand behind his back. In these parts, it was considered a sign of demon possession. Exactly. Alan Winston, Barcore Radio here with my co-host Rebecca McCain in Henderson County in western North Carolina. We're here to talk with author and apple grower Evan Williams. His family has lived in the Blue Ridge Mountains since before the Revolutionary War and his writing abides within the people and environment of small-town Appalachia. Alan and I are here at the Triskelion Brewing Company in Hendersonville, North Carolina for a conversation. No, I think it's, it's Triskelion. Triskelion. Like with an I? With a key? No. Triskillion. Well, we just we just met Sam, I the bartender. I just asked Sam how to say it. Triskillion. Like with a like a short I. Yeah, Triskillion. Okay. Not Triskillion. Triskillion. I thought that's what I said. Okay. All right, I'll do it again. <laughs> we want to get the name of the bar right, I guess. Right. <laughs> Alan and I are here at the Triskillion Brewing Company in Hendersonville, North Carolina, for a conversation with Evan Williams about his recent novel Ripples, his family and life in Western North Carolina, and the mysteries of apple growing. And with that introduction, here we go. Evan Williams. Yes, Howdy. sir. Hi. Welcome, welcome to Bar Crow Radio. Welcome. And thank th you. And thank you for uh, um, opening up your bar, because this is like you go here. Right. My uh, son-in-law plays here quite a bit. He performs on the stage, uh, typically out back. And uh, usually my daughter and uh, two grandsons and uh, little grandsons, six and four years oh. old, and my new granddaughter are all here too. So it nice. uh, comes a family affair. Very right? nice. Well, for over a year now, we've not been able to record in our local bars, but we are today. We're in a, we're in a local bar in Hendersonville. And we want to give a shout-out to the Triskillian Brewing Company here in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And a second shout-out to Evan's sweetheart, Mary Ann Phillips, who joined us for this conversation. So we want to talk to you about your, your uh, recently published novel, Ripples. Um, but first, let's get to know you and your family and hopefully get a feel of this region. Uh, many residents of Hendersonville have come from somewhere else. Absolutely. I guess it began a long time ago in the sense that uh, a lot of the uh, plantation folks along the east coast uh, from Charleston on further down to Savannah and, and would come here in the summertime to avoid the heat. Um, the Flat Rock area at one time was, was known as Little Charleston, they called it. 
uh, and uh, before people understood about the connection between mosquitoes and malaria, it made it a popular destination. Um, there was a direct um, railroad line from Charleston here to Hendersonville. The depot was just a couple hundred yards uh, away from us right now. And um, also, too, uh, during the time of tuberculosis, Hendersonville was the only place on the Southern Railway line to allow folks who were afflicted with tuberculosis to get off the train. You know, that time doctors were prescribing mountain air as the yeah, only solution. Yeah, great mountain air here. Right, and we had a lot of uh, a lot of sanitariums and all that were dedicated to that. But not not anymore. No, no. Yeah. And and now people from the north and the south come to work here and retire. Right. We've got, uh, I can still remember as a child when uh, Interstate 26 was being constructed. Uh, my family's idea of, uh, of uh, high entertainment uh, was uh, Sunday after church to go uh, riding down to see the construction of the Green River Bridge and how much progress had been made from one week to the next. Is at one point it was the highest bridge east of the Mississippi until something in West, bridge in West Virginia took over. But when Interstate 26 was built and then it intersected Interstate 40, it really brought a tremendous amount of traffic here. The influx of, uh, of, the, of migrant workers to this area made a gigantic change as well. Uh, when I was a child, a lot of the farm work was done by local people and sometimes folks who were a little bit down on their luck because let's face it, who wants to be out working in the heat of the summer or the cold of the winter and uh, it's not a high paying job and it's extremely strenuous so we had a lot of folks that were, uh, you know, struggled with alcohol or didn't have a driver's license and, you know, really, really... Uh, Struggling, and then and you um, write about you write about that in your in your book, yes, uh, ripples, and and the other book which I don't think we ma mentioned is one apple at a time, one apple at a time, which is more of a biography. It it's a it's a it's somewhat of a memoir, but I tell people it's a little bit of historical narrative. I, I wrote it as a tribute to my grandfather uh, because of uh, all the lessons he taught me, life lessons growing up in the apple orchard. But there's there's some. Uh, creative conversation in there that I obviously were, was not present for, but the stories are all true. Your family goes way back. Um, where were your ancestors from, and why did they settle in this region of Appalachia? My uh, Williams ancestors came from Wales, and on my mother's side, the Garretts were also Welsh. Um, I don't know as much ab about the, the Garrett family going back as I do the original uh, family from Wales that came over. A gentleman by the name of John Williams landed in uh, Brunswick County, Virginia in the 1750s and uh, uh, after just a very short stay there, uh, packed up family and all and, and headed this way. And when you think about that, I mean, just even the mechanics of it. How, how do you do that? You know, there it's not like there were highways, just essentially trails, and people talk about, oh, the Cherokee Highway, That's that was, a, <laughs> you know, wide enough for a cart, you know, to, to, to pass or whatever. And, and so they traveled a, a long, long way to get here. But, you know, my, my family was part of the fourth migration. You know, if you read the book, The Albion Seed, 
you know, they weren't the, the aristocracy, they weren't the, they weren't the wealthy, they weren't the, the ones who were given military land grants because of great military accomplishments. They were the fourth group, the ones who were, were poor and, you know, were willing to risk life and everything else in order to get here. And why they settled here, you know, some people theorize, especially with the Welts, that they they like the mountains because it maybe reminded them of home a little bit. But our mountains here are much more prominent, you know, much higher prominence than anything in Wales. But uh, maybe they simply liked it because um, of the isolation. The Welch people were, uh, even to this day, very much isolated people and keep to themselves a lot. Did your grandfather speak Welsh? No, no, but he uh, he definitely spoke Elizabethan English. He All right, had... I was going to ask you about that. Since you brought it up, <laughs> yeah. your Pa Glenn, right. um, which is your grandfather on your father's side, yes, sir. had a very unusual way of putting phrases together. Absolutely. Um, it was the rasher. Rasher of bacon was one, but there's See, others. And you never asked him. No. But that's Do you a remember form of measurement. That's, I don't think that's, it's, is it archaic? I, rasher is, is a measurement. Rasher is, a, rasher actually, they say, applies to thin slices of meat. Okay. A, okay. Every, everything that he said that, that, you know, I'm now able to research quickly and, and easily on the internet, every phrase he used had, had meaning to it. Do you have any examples that you remember? Uh, someone would sneeze and he would say, scat there. And scat there, you know, instead of Gesundheit or whatever, bless you, he'd say scat there. And that one took a little bit of, that one took a little bit of doing, but scat there, uh, it's related to uh, like a, a, a cat being on the table and the cat getting its tail in the butter and they say something to the cat about off the table, you know, get off the table, we don't want the cat on the table, but then it ties back into uh, that folklore of a cat getting up in a child's crib and stealing the breath away from an infant and the cat being a symbol of the devil. So scat there was essentially, when someone sneezed, was essentially saying sort of like bless you because, you know, that if folks do a little research, they know that when someone sneezes, old-timers considered that that was a demon leaving your body when you sneezed and so they're saying oh well bless you you've got a demon out of you so scat there is a roundabout and archaic way of saying the same sort of thing and it's just funny that it that it all had it all was founded you know well founded it had actual meaning and we just kind of you know as kids we just laugh like oh what, you know crazy, yeah you never asked him. give us one more i want to hear one more. uh another one was uh balk b-a-l-k which is um, used in baseball right yeah, and, and he would say you know before the before the time of cell phones and all when you've got so many acres of apple orchard you're trying to communicate with one another where you're going to be or where you're leaving equipment and it's there's always a certain amount of movement involved between the people picking and the boxes and the ladders or where you've left a tractor and we had one orchard which we refer, referred to as across the creek because it was on the other side of a creek so we called it across the creek and he'd say Meet me, uh, meet me at the white Russian tree above the wide balk across the creek. Well, the wide balk was the area where there was a, a, a missing row or two of trees 
and allowed us to park our truck, big truck there and load it up and it allowed us to circle around and all and it was a much needed area for the, for the machinery and all. And it turns out that if you look up the word balk in Old English, it means uh, an area where there were missing furrows, say like in a field or whatever that wasn't plowed, that was just left untended. And so the wide balk was accurate as could be. Interesting. Amazing. Nothing to do with baseball. No, nothing to do with baseball. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, so, I mean, somehow he picked this up. I'm sure. I'm father. sure he heard right. I'm sure it was language that he heard, and that was, these were common references to him. And I, I had the good fortune of growing up around a lot of older people, and uh, um, I heard this kind of language all the time. And and uh, it just became second nature to me. Right. I'm going to put you on the spot here. What's the one thing? that you love about Western North Carolina? The one thing that I love about Western North Carolina? I know there's Carolina, probably many. Yeah, there, there are many. But, but I would have to say that, that right offhand, the, the thing I love most about this area is the topography. I, uh, I've traveled not as extensively maybe as I would like to have, but I love the topography. I, I love the mountains, I love the valleys, I love the, the fact that we have rivers everywhere and the foliage and the fact that it is just so lush here. What part of the day do you like? Part of the day I like is uh, sunset and, and shortly thereafter. Right, right. Definitely my favorite you know, the, the, the mornings are amazing. Because you had the dew coming up, laying right. on top of the water. Right. You, you, you mentioned uh, a fishing hole, a place where you liked to go fishing as a kid. Right. And you remember that place. I guess it's still there without telling us where it is. Don't give it away. Because we know that stuff is really kind of like part of a <laughs> it's family. It's protected, yeah. Um, well, I don't, have a f I don't have a favorite fishing hole on family property per se. Uh, but the, my, my favorite fishing hole that I would go to is at the base of Big Bradley Falls uh, down in Polk County, uh, just, just an adjacent county here to Henderson County. And uh, unfortunately, a place where a lot of people have uh, been injured and lost their lives, getting too close to the edge. But I, uh, I, bought, a little, I bought a little day pack, a little Boy Scout edition day pack, and a collapsible five-piece rod, lightweight rod, so I could put it in the day pack so I'd have both hands free to hold on to the rhododendron and mountain laurel as I slid down the bank of the side of the mountain to get to this fishing hole wow. at the base of this that's giant dedication. waterfall. Yeah. Wow. So that's my favorite fishing hole. Wow. And wow. I, I'd be, and, you know, in, in craziness, I, I'd be off by myself and my mom, you know, never batted an eye. Uh, nobody knowing where I was and so easy to have gotten injured or killed or whatever but you know when when children grew up on the farm like that they learned about danger and, and things early on in life and maybe she felt like I'd be okay. Right? So much of your writing describes the meals and your paternal grandmother that, that she cooked. Right. What can we learn about this area from that that fair from its fair grits fried bologna squirrel brain squirrel brain squirrel brain exactly. but you know my mom's from, we're from texas my mom's from the south and so you know during the the depression they ate everything so everything. that really doesn't surprise me so much but absolutely yeah. absolutely and and it was uh i think that tells you that people uh even up until not that not that long ago uh, were consuming what they could grow, what they could find, what they could hunt. My grandmother on my mother's side 
uh, used to say that the most difficult period of the year was between poke salad and blackberries. And I asked her, I asked her what she meant by that, and she said because uh, by the just before the time that poke salad was grown enough to be edible, that pretty much all the stores of food that they had in the cellar were eaten, and you know everything that would have kept apples, cabbages, and all too that wasn't canned was gone, and so they had very little you know, growing to eat. The poke salad was the first thing. And so they what ate. What is poke salad? Poke well, yeah, salad is essentially a weed uh, and people eat the, the leaves off of it and you have to boil it two or three times. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a bitter green type thing. And, Sounds uh, awful. Oh, it, most people think that it is, but it, but if your you know if your livelihood your, depends on it, then Marianne just said it smells terrible. Oh yes, and so they would eat the poke salad, but then there was nothing that would ripen up until blackberries came along, and so that was a real struggle. I mean, we we now she grew up on top of a mountain, and maybe they didn't have creasy greens like we have here, but again another green. People eat dandelions, people eat lamb's quarters, people eat creasy. Greens greens anything green that comes up early people would eat you know because that's that's what they had that's all they had to eat so what can we learn from this what you can learn is that this area and the people who settled here were an extremely independent lot they were extremely self-sufficient lot and and that's what you'll still encounter i mean there are people around in this area who are native and whose families have been here for a long time are just as friendly and accommodating as they can be. And they're also extremely, you can say hard-headed, stubborn, I'll just use the word independent, because they had to make their own way, you know? When it came springtime and you were planting the beans that you had saved and dried out of the, out of the fields that you, you had last year, you had to know when to put those bean seed in the ground so that the frost wouldn't get the young plants when they came up. You had to make sure, you know, think about what kind of rainfall you're gonna get because they can mold and mildew you underground and never even come up. You have to make sure that you only bury them maybe an inch or two with cover because you can bury them too far, they're not going to come up. Bury them too shallow, they'll come up but won't have good roots. And if you, if you make a mistake, you don't get to go down to the feed and seed store and buy much more because there is no feed and seed store. You're living off the side of a mountain and your family is depending on you to make the right decision with those bean seed and with all the seed that you have. And so it's all critical. And whenever, whenever you are involved in the process of growing and producing your own food, it, it's a it becomes a, a certain kind of a zen experience to complete it and to eat it and to enjoy it because you know all the effort that went into it all the weeding and the hoeing and, and then the preparation involved and and i think i think the food that we hear and, and the, the the food that we would typically you'd find in a, grown in the garden or whatever that people eat and some of the strange things like uh, you know, pickled pig's feet and that sort of kind of thing. I don't, I don't get too stereotypical, but 
it means a lot to people. It has meaning, you know, and, and some of us are still eating the things that we grew up eating. And, and you know, I, I've been out and worked in different places and been out on the road and eaten at restaurants maybe Monday through Friday and come Friday evening and get back home and all I wanted was a big pot of pinto beans and some cornbread. You know, I, uh, it, it just to get back to, to it what, it, what it was you had growing up and what sustained you. You know, it seems up. to me culture has a long memory. And though people don't have to live that way right. anymore, there's still the feeling. Exactly. But maybe they should. kind of carries on. Right. Yeah. It, it's a certain commitment. And, you know, uh, a lot of the a lot of genetic scientists and all are saying now that that we inherit we're inheriting more than DNA from our ancestors that there's there's something more and they can't even put they can't even put their finger on it they're saying even things like mannerisms you know even the way we laugh you know that there are there's certain things that are somehow or another are carried over and they can't explain it and I think that's kind of what you're talking about right, there right you know? so I mean that, that that idea of independence of that character of, of strong, I can do it on my own. Right. I mean, however, you could describe it better than I do. But that's part of the DNA, I'm putting quotes around it, right. of this Western North Carolina. And you Absolutely. had to be able to do it on your own. And you had, and they were no closer choice. to the land. They were paid more. I mean, when it rains, we get upset because it ruins our picnic. They understood much more about right. you know, the importance of rain. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, just a... A fellow stopped me the other day. We were talking on the side of the road, and he had been he had been reading some from uh, one apple at a time, wasn't it, Marianne? And uh, he was saying to me, he "Goes and and if you really worked as hard as you said you did in your book." And I'm like, I said, you know, he's an older gentleman, and I was being polite and all. And I said, "Well, you know, yes, sir, I, I, I did." And I said, and, and even more so probably because I said. You know, I heard on the Paul Harvey show probably 20, 25 years ago, he said only 2% of Americans grew up on a farm. So now it's probably 1% or less. Or less. And so how do you describe that to someone whenever they don't, they don't begin to understand the daylight to dark thing and work that never ends and, you know, year and round. starting and at a very young age. At a very young age. So, that, so that's what we want to dig into here. So you write in your autobiography of the William family, um, one apple at a time, that southern boys, quote, are frightened to venture f- north of the Mason-Dixon line or west of the Mississippi. What is that fear? And, and does it continue today? I don't know if it continues that much. Maybe maybe past my generation. I'm 61 years old and um, I guess I'm the last of the, technically the last of the baby boomers or whatever. I think it's maybe somewhat the fear of the unknown, but I also think it's, I think it's the uh, attachment to what is so familiar. My grandfather on my mother's side um, during World War II uh, wasn't called to serve, but he went up to work in a factory in Chicago. And uh, I guess it was probably like an auto factory had been converted to maybe making military equipment or something, military machines or something like that. And he, you know, he immediately came back. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't interested in staying or, or whatever, moving his family up there. But, um, 
it, it's a little bit it's a little bit like some of the tourists that come here and, and see our area and love it well enough to move here and stay. What do you think they see? I, you know, I, I think they. Let's put it this way: I, I've I lived I lived one place that the closest national park was six hours away, um, and the average rainfall was like in the 14 inches a year range. Everything was brown, no greenery. Uh, there was no such thing as game lands. You know, uh, what we have here is we have an outstanding university system in North Carolina, just unparalleled university system in North Carolina. But in the west, here in the western part of the state, we have Blue Ridge Parkway, the most visited parkway in the United States. We have visited National Park in the United States. We have the Smoky Mountains for many years, the most visited, now the second most visited national park in the United States. We have a great a great transportation system in the sense that people can get here easily. I've, I've lived in, in California for a while and encountered all sorts of people that knew exactly where Hendersonville was because of Blue Ridge Parkway or because of the Smoky Mountains. And I, I think when people come here they see that yes it's settled and yes we still we have most if not all of the modern conveniences but we still have vast forested acreage there's there's so many ways to get away there's you know lakes and rivers in abundance you know there's we we have a lot of culture here i, I was trying to explain to 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 someone one time i i made the mistake of of saying it in front of someone who was listening off to the side i said hendersonville's a very metropolitan city and this fellow was laughing at me and i said <laughs> Okay, you know, I, it's very, I said, it, it, it is a cosmopolitan place. And he's like, cosmopolitan? And I said, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to try to defend it, you know. But it, but it is, as you said, we have people who have come here from all over the place. One fellow told me um, a few years ago, he said, I have traveled all over the world. He said, and I have never found a more satisfactory place to live than here. And so I stayed. You know, I stayed. And how is that influx from people from all over the place, from cities, from different parts of the United States, changed what was a very local community? How has it changed it? I have friends who have moved away from this area because they don't like the they don't like the growth. They don't they don't like growth. They want it to stay the same. And I've tried to explain to them especially after talking to people from other parts of the country where there isn't the growth that we have here, there isn't the influx, that there are really only two, two sides to the coin for small-town America, and it's either growth or stagnation and decay. And there's plenty of places I can take you not far from here and show you stagnation and decay. So it's going to be one or the other. There is no such thing as stasis in small town America. You, you accept it or you don't. It's you know? the nature of life. Right. And, you're and either growing or you, you're dying. You grow and you grow along with it. I write, you know, in Ripples, uh, the, the, the main character makes the comment that this little town of abundance where he lives, they don't have a gene pool, it's a gene puddle. 
you know, and, and that's the way that's the way it could be here too, if it weren't for the influx of people coming in. You know, we have the State Theater of North Carolina here in Hendersonville. That's brought in all all kinds of people from all over. We can you can see people on, on the movies and on television that got their acting starts here at the Flat Rock Playhouse or performed here wow. at Flat Rock Playhouse. Are, aren't you afraid you're gonna lose the quality, the nature that we were talking about? The culture that is of this place, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know so much that we will. I, I, I don't. I, my concern would be not so much about the people moving in, watering things down, as it would be with the younger generation uh, not fully appreciating what they have here. Uh, you know, my Williams family still has a. Family reunion. Uh, I don't know if that's a southern thing or not. Uh, where well, my family just walked in. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the Castilian bar. But you know, uh, every one one Sunday every year, they get together. The the Williams family get together. Whoever wants to, and and we have a celebration and, and see each other. Uh, but you know, fewer and fewer people go to that. And and my, my children aren't interested in genealogy like I was. I wrote my high school term paper uh, for English on the history of the Williams family, and they're not interested to that extent. You know, my mom worked the last job she had for 37 years. She's living in the only the second house that I lived in as a child, and she's been there for over 50 years. Uh, her, the farm she grew up on is less than a mile away as a crow flies. That's not the way it is anymore. You know, we're a society in flux. People move because of jobs and one thing or another. And I, so that would be my, more my concern. Is that Another big part of this region of the country, and that is um, religion. Yes. Uh, the Baptist religion. Uh, you are Baptist. You're raised a Baptist. It's an important, important part of your life from my reading of your, of your books. Can you talk about the relationship between that religion and the community that maybe that you grew up in? Well, just to set the record straight, I, I wasn't raised Baptist. I was sandwiched in between a couple of Baptist churches, but the church that I went to never really, really had a name. Some people called it the Church of the Abrahamic Faith. Other people called it Advent Christian Church. Uh, the Baptists called us the No Hell Church. I learned, I learned later on in life that we referred to as the No Hell Church. I was in, I was in that, that church from birth until age 16, until our dad uh, extricated us and moved us to a, to a different church further away. Belonging to a particular church is important to the family, right? Is I what? mean, families would be split up based on exactly. which church they belong to. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I lived through that. That was, a, that was an everyday thing, everyday thing for me, you know. Uh, I had, uh, it was an everyday thing for like my grandmother and grandfather Williams. He, he went to the main Baptist church in the community. My grandmother would not go there. She never attended church with him at all. In never. fact, never, ever. Wow. In, in fact, she would said she would not ever go to a church that her dad, uh, sainted father had never set foot in. So that was her requirement for attendance at a church. Uh, my mom went to that same Baptist church, but somehow, I don't know how, my dad got her to go to the No Hell Church that he had been attending, so I don't know how that all took place. I grew up thinking as a child that I was going to have to marry one of the only two girls that was in the No Hell Church, and uh, they were sweet as could be, but I, I really wasn't that attracted to either one of them, but I figured I was going to have to marry within my faith because I didn't know how to 
convert somebody from Baptist to the No Hell Church, and so yeah. it was a, it was a quandary. But uh, you know, when I when I write in Ripples again, Ben Bramley, the main character, says that. Uh, he didn't just grow up in the Bible Belt, he grew up right in the buckle. Uh, and that uh, is very accurate of this place. That is a huge part of how people identify themselves, is not just by their denomination, but by exactly where they go where Still they go to today, church. you think? Extremely. Amazing. This, Amazing. This, this area, Henderson County, ask Marianne, she's a good Baptist lady. This area is extremely conservative. I mean, it, it, it's it's it, it's beyond conservative. Marianne, do you want to say something about that? Very conservative Baptist people are Baptist all the way, <laughs> and it is as Evan said, when you're born Baptist, it is usually Baptist for life. So you're expected as a child to to continue. Absolutely. Absolutely. But surely that doesn't always happen. It doesn't. No, it doesn't always happen, but it's pretty much an expectation. It's an obligation. I mean, in fact, you know, it, it's, uh, I can't even begin to overstate it, you know, and, and uh, there are probably folks that will read my novel and think, well, that's an exaggeration, but, but it's not, not at all. Well, it is a huge part of Ripples. We will get to Ripples. So in the meantime, this is Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, and Alan and I are sitting in the Trickleson? Triskillian. Stop it. I was going to fix it. Okay, more editing for you, dearie. This is Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, and Alan and I are sitting in the Triskillian Brewing Company in Hendersonville near Asheville in western North Carolina. We are talking with writer and apple grower, Evan Williams. Let's learn more about this area um, through one of its largest industries, apple growing. Which I didn't know. No idea. I mean, New York City, I mean, New York State big apple right. growing community. So your family has been in the apple business for generations. How did it start? Uh, at least seven, I'm at least the seventh consecutive generation. And it, may, and it may go further back than that. We just don't, there comes a point where we just don't know for certain. But evidently, it's just something my Williams family's been doing forever. My, my mother's family, the Garretts, apple growing as well. So my dad married someone that not only had he gone through 12 years of school with and graduating a class of 24, 12 women, 12 men. Um, and, Do you think uh, they all picked, you know, they 12 marriages? They were no, it didn't, didn't quite work out that <laughs> no, way. No. no, no, not exactly. Um, I don't even know how the apple growing started here other than it's an outstanding climate for it. And the reason you haven't heard of it is North Carolina does not command enough uh, attention in the marketplace. You know, we just don't at one point when I was a child, this was the most concentrated area of apple growing anywhere on the planet. Uh, anybody who had even just a little patch of land had some apple trees set up. Uh, then as more and more people started moving here, farms declined and people sold their land to subdivision development. But uh, uh, we, there's still a tremendous number of people here that are growing apples. Um, and uh, it's... Our claim to fame right now is that 
we can get one of the earliest apples on the market. If you're familiar with galas, we can get them on the market earlier than any other state. Now, now the character in Ripples, the main character, Ben Bramley, is named after a, an apple. Exactly. Type, the Bramley exactly. apple. Yeah. Um, and he says that city folk, in, in your novel, knows nada, quote, about that form of life, working, exactly. and working on an apple orchard. What is the work of running a commercial apple orchard? You, you write that it's both physical and dangerous. I didn't realize how dangerous it was. Well, there's a great deal of chemical activity that's involved. Um, there's, there's the, the you're uh, part chemist if you're an apple grower because you're, you're taking different um, spray materials and mixing them together in certain proportions uh, and, and putting them in a, uh, in a large tank and with water and, and adding them you typically in powdered form. Sometimes they're in liquid form and you have to mix them up in the correct proportion and you have to, then you have to size your nozzles on the sprayer a certain way. Then you have to set your speed of your tractor a certain speed so that you're getting adequate coverage without getting too much or without getting not enough. And it, it uh, I tell people the dumb farmers went out of business a long time ago. So, uh, but as far as say like the dangers concerned, when I was, whenever I was in my teens and maybe even in my early teens, I was I was off down at what we called the spray pond, where we had a small pond with a with a pump and all, and, and a little block house where we kept a lot of our our chemicals. And I would be down there mixing up uh, paraquat to spray for weed killer. Uh, paraquat is one of the two ingredients in Agent Orange. Paraquat and diesel fuel made up Agent Orange in the campaign in Vietnam. Uh, it was a deadly liquid and no cure so for it. So when I'm eating my gala apple, I'm not eating paraquat. No, you're not, not eating anymore, paraquat. Nobody, nobody's using paraquat anymore. But I'm taking, as a teenage boy by myself, I'm taking a gallon jug of paraquat in liquid form and I'm pouring it into a tank on the back of a tractor that's turned and cranked with a giant hose pumping, you know, five gallons of water every 10, 20 seconds into this tank and all too. And I'm trying to get the right proportions and I'm trying not to spill paraquat on me because I get enough of it on my skin and direct contact and I'm going to be dead before the evening's wow. over. Wow. You know, so yeah, there's also the pruning, climbing right. out on the branches. And exactly. So many dangers. Oh, well, yeah, because a lot of times we were pruning and, and we, whenever I was younger and we had what are called standard size apple trees, large enough for grown men, multiple grown men to climb up in and all too, we were having to make big cuts and so we'd be climbing with chainsaws and making cuts with chainsaws. So I, again, he's a teenage boy climbing up with a live chainsaw and cutting over your head and uh, you know, if the weather was bad, uh, we'd try not to prune whenever there was too much snow and ice, but there'd come a point in time if the, if the winter extended too long, you might be climbing a tree that's got ice on the limbs and you're trying not to slip and <laughs> cut yourself and you got a live chainsaw. But there is a whole lot more that you can learn, readers and listeners, about the apple growing business from both ripples and one apple at a time. Right. And I totally recommend it. But you're no longer in the apple business, as I understand. Why'd you stop? I have my commercial apple orchard leased out. I my body's too worn out to to deal with all that anymore. And I just, frankly, I just don't want to 
invest that much into it. What I am into right now is um, heirloom apples, and I have my own heirloom apple orchard. And uh, my heirloom apple orchard I have set up in such a way to require as little physical labor as possible. Um, I don't spray my trees. I don't put out any herbicides. I don't put out any fungicides. I don't I don't use any petrochemicals. My apples are grown not even, they're not even organic. They're grown all natural. Uh, I only so did know, you bring some heirloom apples from the Evan Blue yeah, tomorrow? Yeah. I, well, I should have. It's, I didn't, it's too I didn't, early, right? Yeah. I didn't know. No, it's not too early. I've probably got some ready, but this year we had a terrible frost and it, it, it pretty much wiped out a lot of the crop, commercial and heirloom in Henderson County and, and mine fell victim. But I have some that I have some that have made it. But it's I tell people it's like my karmic bed after all the chemicals and, and you know, the weed killers and all that and everything, you know, growing up now I'm growing apples that don't require anything. And so I've searched the world to find the best fresh tasting apples that will grow unaided. The way you describe it in the book, I mean, they sound like a different kind of apple than the one we usually eat. Oh, yes. And I, I, I would love to experience that at some point. <laughs> Last year, I was tasting one that, that uh, appeared for the first time on one of my trees, and it tasted so good, I actually bit my tongue trying to rush to get to the next bite. So, so it's a blood apple. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so there's apples, and then there's your other interest, writing. Right. When did you first see yourself as a writer? I first saw myself as a writer all the way back in elementary school. Um, I was fascinated with reading, and um, I had the good fortune in second grade uh, to have a teacher by the name of Mrs. Judy Worley. Mrs. Worley allowed me and one other student to sit at the very back corner of the class, and in this old, old building, this old, old building with these giant Venetian blinds and giant windows, when everyone else had to take nap time, she allowed us to crack the Venetian blinds a little bit and read our library books. And while all the other second graders had to check books out from the easy section in the library, she gave us free reign. Well, at that time, I thought books were magical. I didn't know where they came from. I had no clue whatsoever. But a fellow who was working in Asheville for the, for the, the Asheville Citizen Times by the name of John Paris was was writing articles uh, about local people, about mountain people, short stories that he was writing. And I found in the library a book that was written by John Paris, and that's when I knew that I could become a writer, because instead of them just coming from some faraway place or in some big city, there was something written by someone local. John Paris was a local author, and I wow. knew that I, knew that I, I could be too if I really wanted that's to. That's great. Uh, but before we get into Ripples and talk about it, could you read a brief description from that novel that when I read it, it put me smack dab in the middle of the orchard. It's like I felt it. And All right. This, right. This comes from page 165 of Ripples. Okay. To the right, he heard the muffled rumble of apples exiting picksacks, bumping their way into 18 bushel bin boxes. Nor could he mistake the whishing sound of errant apples zipping through the leaves, thumping on the ground. He winced at a little at each individual thump, knowing that what should have been a high-dollar apple had slipped from a picker's grasp, struck the ground, and bruised in the process, becoming a cheapened juice apple. 
by the way, I, I, I love your descriptions. Um, Thank I you. mean, that, I, especially the, 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 the whoosh of the apple falling through the leaves, and you realize the there's an apple coming your way, going to knock you on the head or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> and not only is it going to hurt, but you're going to, that apple is going to be ruined. Right. And it goes, and you don't make as much money on the juice. Oh, apple. no, no. Back, uh, back even when I was a teenager, $20 a ton for juice apples. Uh, it was, uh, as I say, in ripples, you couldn't afford to pay the help to pick up juice apples. That's what the family did. The family picked up the apple from the ground. I, I mean, my back starts hurting thinking about bending over and picking right. up those, those apples all over the place. Let's delve into uh, this most interesting and emotionally difficult story of the Bramley family in your newest novel, Ripples, a couple years ago. That came out. Right. Before moving on, a brief summary of Ripples. Ben Bramley, the son and grandson of apple farmers, has left the fictional town of Abundance to pursue a professional career. When he learns that his father was seriously injured, he returns to his hometown to deal with the psychological wounds of his childhood. To set the record straight, anyone who's read, who reads this novel, though there are many similarities to your life in Ripples, the main character is Ben, is not you. No. Nor is Ben's father and mother your parents. No. Um, In spite but, of what my mother says. Right. My, my mother, who's not read, not read the book at all, has decided that I and Ben Bramley are the same people. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But the grandfather is, and the grandmother, to me, seems like these people are real. They are who, in, the, in, in your one apple at a time. They sound a lot like the, the folks from one apple They sound a lot like the ones in Ripples. They are a lot like the folks from one apple at a time. They're, they're not the same, but they are, they are a lot like the ones from one apple at a time. Uh, Granny in Ripples is, is way more feisty than my grand, than Nanny, my grandmother Williams was. She's she's way more of a she's way more of a type A and I'm in charge kind of person than my grandmother Nanny. Right, was. and a big big part of the story is the trip that Ben takes with his with his grandmother. Right. Um, yep. Life changing. A unique a unique kind of idea of a grandmother and a and a grandson going off and having that experience. Right. Right. That is very private. Right. And, and very real and very enriching. Yes. But yet led to tragedy. And, you know, uh, when you ask about what's true and what's not, my, my, my grandmother, Nanny, used to take my two, two younger brothers and me fishing in the family, family pond. So that's not, you know, it's, uh, they say authors write what they know. And, you know, that, that experience was easy to draw, easy to draw upon, you know. And the idea, too, that, I'm the, my two brothers and I are the only grandsons, and uh, on both sides, we're the only grandchildren on both sides of the family. And so you can imagine the kind of attention and all that, that we got. Growing up, grew up next to the Williams grandparents, right next to them, and then the Garrett grandparents a mile away. Um, I, you know, I wasn't at, I didn't, there's not that much of a gap between my, my brothers and me. There's, there's less than three years between my two brothers and me. My mom said when she got started, she wanted to get it over and done with. But, uh, um, you know, but it's easy to see why Ben would be resentful of, of his younger brother, you know, because you've got, you've got all that attention doled out on you, and then suddenly change comes. You know, well, so. I think that's pretty common in a lot of families, yeah. yeah. But it's the nanny in this, it's like she, or the, the, grand, the grandmother, sees that and like says, let's go do something. Let's right. go do something, just you and me. Right, right, yeah. And, and that's, that's a lot of the way, 
Nanny would have been that way. You know, I, I used to get teased about being her favorite. Now we're, we're talking real life again. You know, I, I used to get teased about being her favorite. I didn't care. And she never came out and said that I was her favorite. I kind of felt like I was because she said that I reminded her of my dad a lot. And my dad was her only child. And so, uh, you know, but I, I, I liked it. You know, what, what am I going to say? No, 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 exactly. no, no. Don't let me be your favorite. You know, right, right, show right. me less attention. <laughs> no, 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 no way. So I understand that you do your writing in Pa Glenn's Apple Shack. Yes. And that used to be his private sanctuary. Yes. Can you tell us about the Apple Shack? The Apple Shed was built whenever I was uh, either 12 or 13 years old, and uh, it was exciting. I, I, I got interested in building because my, my dad um, uh, built the house that, that I essentially grew up in uh, starting whenever I was age six. And I got to see all of the excavation for the basement, you know, the pouring of the slab, the block coming up. And uh, I, he drew out the plans on the on the cardboard from a refrigerator box, an empty refrigerator box. And uh, he had one carpenter there working all the time. And it was wonderful to see all that building. And so whenever my granddaddy decided to build a, a, a larger shed, a, a, a Apple storage house, uh, I was really thrilled to get to watch that. And it became... It became a sanctuary for me too. We well, we, we put up a basketball goal in there, and I, I still run into a, a lot of old friends from high school that'll talk about coming and playing basketball there, and you know, in the dry of the shed, and then lights at night, and we could play anytime. And and uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it uh, once I leased out the orchard, and uh, we were no longer using it for that purpose, it seemed like a good opportunity to convert it into a home. So. Right. I've been amazed. It occurs to me you're writing in your Pa Glenn's apple shed, right? About Pa Glenn exactly. and the family. That must have kind of put you right there. Oh, absolutely. And and you have to back up just a little bit too. That uh, when we were still using it as apple storage a lot of times we kept our boxes and I, I talk about i just mentioned a bin box an 18 bushel box when i was a kid we picked in bu a single bushel wooden box and then in my lifetime it converted to an 18 bushel box about four by four holding 18 bushels and had to use a forklift and all that we stored those boxes in that shed when we weren't using them and when it wasn't apple season and uh I would escape from the family who a lot of times made fun of me for my uh, over-interest in reading or whatever. I would escape and go up to that shed and I'd climb up a tall, tall row of those boxes up 14, 15 feet high and crawl in an empty box that sat at the very top and get my book out and, and, and be in there and just away from everybody privately reading. So I was also writing in the same places that I'd been doing all my reading. I'm getting kind teenager. of vertical thinking you're so <laughs> uh, high. And, but I'm yeah. also hearing that, you know, you just did what you was true to your heart. You right. did what you wanted to do. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You use your family farm and where you grew up as a backdrop for the Bramley story. Right. Is the Raging River... The, uh, how, how do you say this? Uno, Uno, the Unalama. Unalama. Is it part of your real-life landscape? It's not part of my real-life landscape, but there's so many rivers around that are like that. Uh, the Broad River down in the Chimney Rock and Lake Lure area, a uh, place that I used to go quite regularly trout fishing, uh, it's a dangerous river. It's a, it's a place where you can jump from rock to rock, and tourists love it, and it's beautiful to see, but it's a good place to get it's a good place to get injured, killed, or whatever, too, just real quickly. One little slip. Exactly, exactly. Right. So we, we've got a lot of rivers around here like that, but 
Um, the Unalama is, I, I, and when I go back and read my novel, I really intended for it to show up more and, and even play a bigger part because the rivers around here are such a focal point for me, you know, and, and uh, uh, people use them for boundaries for property, people, you know, people use them for recreation, but but people, you know, use them as, as a focal point, you know, and now it's kayakers coming in. We have places, I have family property that, that shows up in kayak magazines and they say kayakers all around the world know about these destinations where my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather own property, you know, but, uh, but there's a huge significance to all that for me, you know, and there's something about, there's something about a really rocky, raging river that I'm both attracted to and also have a huge amount of respect for the potential danger. Right, and, and it's a big part of Ripples. Yeah, right. It, it is water. Right. Waters. It's waters all through right. Ripples. So we have the ripples that go out from a, a family through the generations, but also that river, which is a raging right. river, right. Right. the Unalama. Right. You point to some difficult truths about the nature of small town living in uh, Western North Carolina. Right. Have you gotten pushback from your neighbors? Yeah, you said your mother hasn't read it. No, she hasn't read it because, and, and I, I encouraged her not to. Um, and I, one of the reasons I encouraged her not to is because of uh, the nature of surrounding uh, my dad's death and the accident that led up to it is not that dissimilar, not, not that dissimilar from what happened to Ben Bramley's father. Not identical, but it's, it's not that dissimilar. And I, I just didn't really, I didn't want her to read that and be reminded of it. Um, so I, I haven't told her that that was the reason, but I just encouraged her not to read it. But I, I, I don't know that she would, she would probably take umbrage with um, some of the, the language and the, the stance that Ben Bramley takes I, toward I, organized religion and the Baptist religion in particular. I, I, I wanted to ask you about the ending. Yeah. Um, it's a very difficult thing to read and to, and to live through as a, as a reader who's, who's in that place. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've gotten pushback about, I, I read that you got pushback about the ending right. of, of, of the story. I'm not going to reveal it here because I think people should read it and kind of grow to that ending. Right. Um, ben encounters his father for the last time, and that encounterment it bothered me. Mm -hmm. It did not endear me to Ben. Right. At all. Right. Uh, who I'd come to respect despite his his falterings, right. psychological falterings, right. and whatever. Right. Um, without giving away a, a very tragic relationship. That yes. Ben had with his father. Yes. Do you think that Ben's actions in that ending were they emotionally healthy? Um, you know, I think I think that he just was doing the best that he could in that situation. I think that for him to even be present there in the room with his dad was. Uh, Huge testament to some deep fortitude that he didn't even know that he had, and so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna judge his response per se, uh, because if I had 
gone through what he went through, I don't know how I would have responded. And and I, I think that's kind of a I think that's kind of a theme that's there throughout the whole novel is you've got a whole community of people that are hell bent on judging one another day in, day out based on the criteria of the church that they go to and the the book that they've adopted as the one and only direction for life. So, you know, I I could have, I could have, I could have made that moment for Ben one that would have been more redemptive. I could have shown him as, let's say, having some type of extremely mature epiphany about, well, everybody screws up or whatever, you know. But I think, I think that, I think, I don't think Ben's there yet. You know, I think that, yeah, he's made some, he's made some consolation where his grandparents and stuff are concerned, you know. He, he's, he's admitted some things to them and saying, you know, I'm, may, I'm not the person you think I am, and I'll probably never be the person that you really want me to be. But where his dad's concerned, I think it's just, I don't know if he'll ever get there. I'm really not sure that he ever, ever gets there. I, I just don't know if he's got that level of forgiveness in him. I just am not, I'm not sure. Okay. Do you plan on returning to Ben Bramley in future novels? Yes, I do. Um, I've uh, barely begun to write, but I've done pretty much all the research I'm going to do on a novel that's not exactly a sequel, but some of the folks in Ripples are going to at least make cameo appearances. Will Silk come back? Uh, I think she probably will. She's luxurious, isn't she? <laughs> but yeah. but I, I think it's I think you're going to find it's going to be more of Ben and Silk's children that show up, adult children. Um, I say adult, like college age or thereabouts, that show up in the the next novel, and it needs a it needs a bigger setting than the quaint little place of abundance. If you think of it as quaint. But it, it's going to be in the same county. I love my imaginary county. I love that it's 45 minutes away from Asheville and completely isolated and all that from the effect of time and change. Uh, but it's going to be set more in Groverton, uh, the county seat that makes a few appearances in, in Ripples. But it's going to be set in Groverton. But it, it's going to be the same. It's going to be similar in that um, there's going to be a, a lot of chaos. There's going to be a lot of upset as change as change comes to town. And uh, I've got the hard parts done already, the title and opening line. So that's the hard part. The rest is just filler material. I'm looking forward to it. Um, do we find out what happened to Ben's mother? You know... And again, everyone's got to read this well, novel to any, know what we're talking any, about any, here. I would say to anyone, anyone who uh, aspires to write or whatever, uh, expect to spend at least as much time on revisions as you do on writing your draft, and probably way more time. I have, I have in my possession probably four or five alternate endings to Ripples, and some do involve. Uh, 
some indication of Ben's mother and um, uh, I, I, wrote, I wrote Ripples as my master's thesis uh, assignment while I was in college at Queen's University in Charlotte and uh, I, I tried a few different endings with my, with my thesis instructor and uh, he didn't go for any of the one, any of those, and, and I, I ended up with with the one that uh, with the one that he thought was best. He didn't want me to do anything that was going to be too jolting or whatever. But uh, you know, at some point, because I have I have dissected so much out of this novel, I have at least this many pages of material of other stories and side stories that come out of this that at some point I'm, I'm planning on, on on publishing something that just is going to be like you know ripples revisited or you know further tales from abundance or whatever and, and just to let just to let people who enjoy the setting and the people read a little bit more and some different things about some of I, well, I look forward to it you don't have to answer all the questions though i don't think that it's the writer or the artist's um, job to answer all the questions no but i have thought about them a lot yeah. no the mother really resides have. in my mind right yeah like, like right yeah i have yeah. I, I have an idea about her yeah I, I have my own ideas and stuff about her too i have formulated my own ideas yeah. about i mean her. having left it open right. it's like i can make whatever i want to make out of it and Right. I see her as a strong woman who finds her way. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I would like to think that too. I, I would as well. Yeah. I would like to think the best the best for her because um, and I, I consider what she did to be, you know, the difficulty of what she did and uh, the difficult decision that, that she came to and the reasons why she did it. And again, like with Ben and his dad there at the end, it, it would be real easy to condemn. It'd be really, really easy to condemn, but none of us know for sure, do we? You know. So you write in the New South, the Civil War has not ended. How is that feeling manifest in the lives of North Carolinians, and why is it so resilient? What was the news? What is the and, news? And you do write about this mm -hmm. a bit, right? Right. Yeah, I do. I, I do. I, I get. I, I. I get downright offensive in some of the things. And some of the language that, that I use, you know, uh, descriptive language. Um, you know, maybe some of it goes back to maybe some of it goes back to that independent spirit. I guess nobody likes to lose, do they? You know, I mean, nobody likes to lose. And uh, what there are people who maybe aren't so much students of history this day. But they still carry, they still carry the animosity uh, of what happened to the South uh, following the loss uh, and with the invasion of carpetbaggers and, and, and the, the lack of political say that went on for a while. Uh, they still are offended at the way the South is looked at in, in general, maybe as, as downtrodden, as uh, uneducated, the, the, the stereotype. And I'll give, you a, I'll give you a short example. Bakery here in town has been here since I was born or whatever. I'm in there one day, just me and the lady in back talking. It's unusual because it's a very popular bakery. but. I'm talking to a lady and she's discovered, of course, that she knows my mother because 
in a small town USA. We're talking about that, and a fellow walks in the door, and he says, "Are you from around here?" And I'm kind of surprised because I went, I had my accent, local accent, kind of beat out of me in speech classes in college and all too. You and still have some of it. A little bit of it, yes, I do. And <laughs> and I got some, but I got a lot of it beat out of me. But anyway, he comes in, and goes, "Are you from around here?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm as local as you can get." That's what I usually tell people, you know. And and before he can say another word, another gentleman comes in that I'm sure this fellow doesn't know. But he literally goes over and gets this guy by the arm and says, come over here, come over here real quick. And the fellow's looking at him quizzically and he says, this guy's local. He's going to tell us all about moonshining. That's the idea that people have about right. exactly. Western North Carolina. That's who you are. That's, that's a lot who, of people's imagination. Right. And, and I, did give him, I, did give him little, I did give him my little short historical lecture. And I said, you know what? I said... The folks who were making moonshine, I said, you see it as just like a outright uh, bucking the government sort of thing. I said, the people who came here were making moonshine back in the old country before they came. And I said, you know what? Once the Great Plains were settled, the folks who lived here realized real quickly their corn was worth more per gallon than it was per pound or per bushel. You know, they couldn't keep they couldn't compete with corn grown in the Midwest where there's no trees to cut down and where it's all wide open plain. And I said, so that's what they did just to make a living, just to keep their families fed, you know. And They were smart. Yeah, they, they had to be, you know. They had, Resilient. Yeah. And yeah. so... Uh, but, that conversation we need to have in this country, that kind of open conversation between the north and the south, right. the east and the west, it's like we are all people exactly, and we do things for reasons and think reasons that we feel are good reasons. We, we're all human beings going through the same universal experience and the sooner we can learn that the better but unfortunately we tie ourselves to these tiny little labels. I'm a Democrat. No, and I'm a Republican. You know, I'm black. I'm white. I like, you know, I like the Carolina Panthers. No, I like the New York Mets. No, I no, I'm a Yankees fan. You know, and, and I, or the car that we drive or the work that we do. And we do that to ourselves. We label ourselves and in, in, in compartmentalize ourselves so in such little tiny compartments instead of realizing we're all human beings and we're all in this big old mess together. So, so when you say there's no way of talking, quote, with conservative and evangelical entrenchment, you feel that there is a way of getting through that entrenchment, both the evangelical entrenchment but also the liberal entrenchment. Yeah, I, I think so. If people will, if people are willing to listen, you know, right. if somebody's willing to listen, if I blame, I blame some things, you know, a few things on the public school system, and I think right now, I think most people, not most, but a lot of people can graduate from high school without the ability to effectively communicate. I mean, they don't have they don't have the language skills or whatever to sit down and have a, a meaningful dialogue without it escalating into anger and fisticuffs, you know. And if people could could understand that debate doesn't mean who's the loudest or who's swinging the biggest bat or who has the biggest gun or driving the biggest pickup truck, then we could do a, a lot more towards 
evolving as a civilization instead of devolving, and that seems to be where we're headed right now. That's a whole big conversation, and maybe the next time we're in Hendersonville, we, we can have that. We've been speaking with author and apple grower Evan Williams, a native of Henderson County in western North Carolina. We've been talking about his recent novel, Ripples, and also One Apple at a Time, a, a biography of his life as a, as a young man here in this part of the country. I recommend both uh, to get a real feel of the aspect of another part of the American story. And thank you so much for, yes. for joining thank us. You thank both. you both. Right. Right. This, this has been fun. Yes. Absolutely. This is Bar Crawl Radio, and we are on the road. For well over a year, we have had to avoid our favorite places to have interesting conversations, neighborhood bars and breweries and pubs and taverns. But today, we are recording at the Trickle Inn. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're so cute. Triskillion. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I, I would leave that in there. <laughs> he will. He will. Oh, no, I will, I will, I will. The tr- the Triskillian Brewing Company in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Let us know what you think of our podcast programs at barcrawlradio at gmail.com. And once again, thank you, Wade Ripka and the Eastern Blockheads Band for our intro and outro music. And again, thank you so much. Thank you all. It's been fun.